Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 24, being recorded on Thursday, April 28th, 2016. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as always, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason. How you doing? I'm doing great, Scott. I'm excited for a couple of reasons this week. It is the NFL draft tonight, and my uh, much-beleaguered hometown team, the San Diego Chargers, had the third pick, so we we picked Joey Bossa. Uh, the defensive end from Ohio State, which is kind of uh, exciting. And more exciting than that, we are trying a new show format tonight. So tonight we are going to do the first episode that we call a deep dive. And this is based on the feedback we've gotten from our listeners that sometimes we bring up an interesting topic and we only have five or ten minutes to cover it. So rather than cover a lot of news and a lot of topics in one show, we're going to pick some big topics like mobile and attribution and omnichannel and dedicate a whole show to it and do a deeper dive. And so we thought we would start off this first deep dive on uh, the topic that we get the most questions about, which is Amazon. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I'm obviously a huge Amazon follower, and I think it's going to be exciting to be able to spend some kind of quality time talking about it. Uh, It's pretty timely, too, because uh, in addition to the NFL draft, there was a much e-commerce nerdier thing that happened today, which was Amazon's first quarter results came out. So I think it'll be good uh, to be able to sprinkle some of that in as we talk about Amazon. It's like everything's coming together perfectly. So what we thought we'd do is break up the show into four big sections. We're going to talk about some of the details about Amazon that that a lot of people don't seem to realize. So hopefully everyone will get a few new tidbits about Amazon they didn't know. And we're going to talk about some of the secrets to their success and what what we see as sort of the core value propositions that they use to their competitive advantage. We're going to talk about some of the misperceptions folks have about Amazon and wrap up most importantly with a discussion about how you, at least we believe, you can compete with Amazon and be successful. Yeah, or at least survive. (laughs) Exactly. So the first topic was details about Amazon that most retailers don't know. And Scott, do you want to take this one? Sure. Thanks, Jason. Uh, the the thing I have noticed about Amazon after kind of following them for 15 years is they're probably the world's most secretive company. Uh, they're a big partner of ours at Channel Advisor. We spend a lot of time with them. Um, they, they are a good partner in that they share things about their roadmap, but they are very secretive about 99.9% of the things going on inside of Amazon. Uh, Apple probably is more secretive uh, than Amazon, but they're, they're a close second up there. So starting with what Amazon does tell folks, uh, I think it's pretty clear to everyone that they're the world's largest online retailer, uh, at least in the U.S., depending on how you count retailer. You have Alibaba up there, too. Um, so in the U.S., they're definitely the largest retailer. Uh, and last year they did, last year in 2015, they did over $107 billion. Uh, so definitely very large. And in the offline world, they're second only really to Walmart, who's up there at about $400 billion. Uh, there uh, and as of tonight, we know in the first quarter of 2016, they grew at about 28 percent year over year, 
And that's that's significant because think about the scale. They're the largest online retailer in the U.S. We talk a lot on the show about e-commerce being at a 15% kind of baseline, according to Comscore. And here they are growing twice that rate at the scale they're at. So they've been able to defy the rule of large numbers, which is pretty interesting. And, and we'll talk about that. Uh, the, they're, they're very secretive about the categories uh, that they have. And they really kind of split them into three buckets. You have media, which is kind of obviously things like books, ebooks, videos, MP3s, CDs, DVDs, stuff like that. Um, then they have this this category that's kind of a weird one called EGM that stands for Electronics and Other General Merchandise, EGM, Electronics General Merchandise. Uh, and then the third one is called Other, and that's the one that was very mysterious for a long time because it was rapidly growing, uh, but no one could tell exactly what was in there. And Amazon would say, okay, we've got some fulfillment revenue in here, advertising, and some cloud computing. Uh, ultimately, last year in 2015, Amazon had to split out the cloud computing because the SEC it became large enough. The SEC has a rule that if things get to be "quote unquote" material, which is generally defined as 10%, you have to break it out. Uh, and, and folks were really blown away by the size of that. But for the you know for our, our retail listeners, the uh, EGM is growing at 32%. So. Uh, inside of Amazon is uh, a bookstore, obviously, and that bookstore is growing at about 9%. It's actually kind of a drag on Amazon's growth rate. Then that causes Amazon to grow 28%. The EGM part of Amazon is growing 32%. And it was interesting today in the earnings, uh, EGM just hit 80% of Amazon's business in the U.S. and 72 international. So uh, definitely a calling Amazon a bookstore is a misnomer at this point because books, uh, the media category is by far a very small part of what Amazon does now. The other thing Amazon publicly discloses is they have 300 million active buyers, a little bit over that. That number is growing at about 13%. Uh, AWS, which is the cloud computing, just hit $10 billion run rate this quarter, uh, which is pretty darn impressive. And it has massive margins. I think it's got like over 80% gross margins and about 25% net margins. And you can tell they're just spending like crazy on that. And, and they're, they're having a hard time keeping those margins uh, where they are because it just keeps getting better and better. Um, so that's what we know about Amazon. What, what, what we don't know is uh, a lot of things like how many prime users are there. Um, how do they do this? Uh, and that's what we're really going to talk about on the show is, is is the deep dive into how does Amazon uh, really grow at this pace because at, they're already at such a huge scale. Uh, and this is important because, uh, as you know, there's really starting to become clear how much impact Amazon is having on the overall industry. Wells Fargo, the analyst there, covers e-commerce and retail and had an interesting perspective where he did a complete analysis of all the companies uh, in his retail sphere and Amazon and determined that last year, Amazon took 50% of the growth in all of retail last year. Uh, and I posit that uh, you know some of these problems retailers are having, like Macy's talking about weather and et cetera, I think they probably have more of an Amazon problem than a weather problem. Uh, one thing I would turn listeners to, we don't have time to go through it all today, but one of the, my favorite things about Amazon is uh, whenever they do an annual letter, we talked about this on the show, they always reference the original letter that Jeff Bezos did when they did their IPO to shareholders called the 1997 letter. And that is really pretty amazing if you think about it. Here we are 20 years later to go read that letter and you know they, they talk about 
Um, he talks about, you know, we believe customers want selection, value, and, uh, you know, great shipping at a low price. Uh, and it's just pretty amazing as an entrepreneur, uh, you know, uh, a, a relatively small entrepreneur compared to what Amazon has built, to see someone put that kind of thing in writing and have it be true and they stuck to it for 20 years. It's just just really kind of mind-boggling. Um those are some of the pieces that that I wanted to share um, uh, that, you know, are some of the details out there that uh, some people do or don't know about Amazon. Did you have any, Jason? You obviously hit all the, the key ones. I would just add a few. In the first one, you implicitly mentioned, but I'm always surprised that people tend not to think about or realize is that Amazon's more than 20 years old. So I still hear a lot of people sort of reference them as a startup and think of them as a new economy company. And, you know, they're a 20-year-old company. I've, I've heard some people joke that they're the oldest startup <laughs> out there because they still act like an entrepreneurial, young, agile company, despite the fact that they do now have uh, two decades underneath their belt. I am also surprised frequently that, that people aren't aware of all the services that Amazon offer or at least try to sell to other retailers. So one that comes up from time to time is that Amazon will let other retailers use their payment services and their login services. And so Amazon calls that login and pay. And there there aren't a lot of retailers using it. There are some good reasons you might not want to use it if they're a, a potential competitor of yours. But it is an interesting service, and it does give us another window into Amazon's business. For example, you mentioned that Amazon has 300 million customers. Login and Pay says that they have about 240 million customers with payment information stored and, in many cases, multiple payment information. So that gives you an idea of sort of what percentage of those customers in Amazon are likely repeat purchasers that have stored their payment information with them. Hmm. And then I'm, I'm always surprised that people forget a lot of the acquisitions and other e-commerce businesses that Amazon owns. So the one everyone seems to be aware of is Zappos, which is, was, of course, one of their first acquisitions. But there's a number of other ones these days. There's a group of companies called Quidzy, which, uh, of course, is uh, Mark Laurie's company before Jet. And that, that's things like diapers.com and toys. And, and that still is a, an operating business. You know, at one point, Amazon launched a separate site for for B2B products, and they've now merged that into the core Amazon ecosystem. So that's the Amazon business portal. They have some interesting product curations in there. They have Amazon exclusives, which is one would think those were exclusive products to Amazon. In many cases, they're not entirely exclusive, but they're a lot of the the Kickstarter type products and crowdsource products and things like that. Of course, they own the apparel company, My Habit, and we saw some news last week um, that they might be shutting down the daily deals part of uh, my habit. They bought the industry's open source database of, of movie information, the IMDB database, and uh, ShopBot, and I'm probably missing a couple others. But there's a lot of companies that still run to varying degrees of autonomy within the Amazon ecosystem. It's interesting to watch as they get more and more ingrained into Amazon. And you look at someone like Zappos, who's been there for a long time, and you can look at, you know, Woot or Quidzy or some of those companies that have been there less time. And it's, it's uh, interesting to watch where they get assimilated and where they're allowed to remain distinctive. 
Yeah, I don't know if a lot of folks know they own Alexa.com, and that's where they were able to use the word, you know, the name Alexa for the Echo. Uh, and then they also own um, one that I stumbled on the other day is Fabric.com. I never knew that they owned that one, but they do. Oh, I did, yeah, I didn't know that either. <laughs> and then, of course, it's not uncommon to run into folks that don't realize that Amazon has a increasingly robust private label business. And that there's a couple tiers of private label products. So Amazon has several private label brands that they really want you to know are part of Amazon. So they have Amazon Basics, and they have Amazon Elements. You know, you see Basics most often in things like batteries and cables um, and a lot of what traditionally were high margin accessories in the, the consumer electronics space. The Elements includes things like baby wipes. But then they also have a bunch of private label brands that they're trying to make into their own brands and, and you know, attach extra value to them so they don't make it so obvious that they're owned by Amazon. On. So the one of the most successful ones they have there is Pinzen, which has been their their betting brand for some time. And of course, in the last month or two, we've discovered a bunch of new private label apparel brands like and they have names like Franklin and Freeman or Franklin Tailored or James and Aaron. And those those brands are clearly intended to evoke an impression that they're a private brand that's been around for a while um, and that, you know, you're not necessarily buying those those apparel items directly as made from Amazon. Yeah, I, was, um, I follow the, the deal of the day kind of Twitter handle they have, and they just put out some Amazon basic sheets today. I didn't know. I knew they did sheets under pins on, but I didn't know they had a, a Amazon basic flavor of, of betting either. So it's kind of, there's, there's, you start scratching the surface on these things and you find, Amazon's manufacturing products all over the place. Yeah, absolutely. And then my favorite fun fact that not very many people know about Amazon is I have a co-worker named David Turner. Um, and David is a very famous branding designer. And amongst the logos he's designed uh, was the Amazon logo. And uh, he tells me that the smile in the Amazon logo is actually modeled after Jeff Bezos. So essentially the Amazon logo is taking his smile to represent customer centricity and attaching it to the A to Z in Amazon to represent that, that they sell everything from A to Z. Interesting. So the, the smile on the box is Jeff Bezos' smile. Is that what you're saying? It, it is. And he has a very good reason to smile because he shipped over a hundred billion of those boxes. Yeah, it's a lot of free impressions. I saw this one article one time where they had taken the boxes and turned them upside down to make them frowns. <laughs> Always the risk with any marketing campaign is your competitors can turn it against you. Cool. Well, the, uh, the second topic that we want to talk about around Amazon is some of the secrets of their success. How are they able to do this? And I, I think of them as these three flywheels that really connect together. The first flywheel is the marketplace. The second one is fulfillment, which gives them fast, free, um, or you know, inexpensive to the consumer shipping. And then the third is Prime. Uh, on the marketplace side, the the it's interesting how this came to be, and, and some of this is urban legend that's been told to me by folks that have left Amazon. And the story goes that Amazon had, had tried for a while to have a marketplace. And their first thing they did was they had Amazon auctions, uh, and that did not do very well. It's like a separate part of Amazon for auctions. And then they set up little Z shops, which was kind of funny. It was kind of like 
today's Shopify or big commerce. So that in a way they were kind of ahead of their game, but again, they, they it didn't really get a lot of traction. Uh, and then the third iteration was primarily in books for used books. They had a lot of people that wanted to sell used books on the site. So they created a marketplace where you would go to the new book listing and you would say, I'd like to list this used and you would put it on there. And that's how the marketplace was born. And that's where it lived for quite a while. Then what happened is, uh, Toys R Us, uh, and I think it was in Q4 of 2006, uh, had been the toy kind of aisle on Amazon, uh, just as much as they had kind of partnered with Borders and a couple other folks. And they, uh, Toys R Us decided to kind of hose Amazon that holiday by leaving in October of that year. And uh, it, was, it was purposely designed so that Amazon would be left in a lurch. What Amazon did was they took a bunch of engineers, and they took the code from that marketplace, and they put it in the toy category. Simultaneously, they had a BD effort go out there and recruit lots of small toy sellers. And the, again, the urban legend is that they had a bigger toy holiday that year by kind of rolling out the marketplace and rolling up their sleeves and, and filling the aisles with thousands of sellers than they did with Toys R Us as the anchor tenant. And that was a huge light bulb moment. Since then, they've been rolling the marketplace out all through Amazon. And I think it's it's one of the big reasons for their success because what the marketplace brings is that endless aisle selection. Because Amazon doesn't have to come out of their, their balance sheet to go buy the product, store it, and whatnot. It allows them to have literally hundreds of millions of products that they could not, not possibly have, even though they have a very large balance sheet. The other benefit to the marketplace is when you it creates competition on the site. So when you uh, in Amazon's involved in that too. So I used to use the example that you know pretend you run the shoe category for Amazon in a traditional retail way. There's only so many shoes you can have on the site. So you may not go get odd sizes or colors like a purple size two shoe. Uh, well, now that shoe can be on the site, and not only that, but if you have two or three sellers of that shoe, they're going to start competing with each other primarily on price. The Amazon marketplace is designed with this buy box uh, that someone quote unquote owns the buy box. And it's generally if the sellers have similar reputations and ship times and inventory levels and that kind of stuff, it, it really is price that drives that algorithm. So that drives value and consumers love selection and value. And that brings more consumers back, which brings more sellers. And the flywheel has really been going on that for quite a while now to the point that uh, it's my theory that that marketplace is spinning off so much profit that it's gotten uh, hard for them to hide it. And in fact, today they had a pretty blowout, uh, you know, kind of profit uh, or EPS earnings per share. Uh, I think Wall Street was expecting 57 cents and they did well over a dollar dollar. So it kind of almost doubled the profit Wall Street was expecting. And and part of that, as you and I have talked a lot about, is the business model of marketplace is pretty interesting. And and I always kind of uh, try to help retailers understand this by imagining two P&Ls. And Amazon's got two businesses, and they each have a different P&L. And the reason why is because of accounting rules. It's not not Amazon doing anything tricky. It's just they're following general accepted accounting policies or gap rules. And when you have a retail business, if you sell a $100 widget – uh, you count that $100 as revenue, then you have COGS or cost of goods, which is what you bought the widget for. Let's say you bought it for $50 and you marked it up 50. Uh, so now you have 50% gross margins. And then you have your sales and marketing, any kind of R&D and G&A, and you're left with a profit. And as you know, in retail, profits range from kind of low single digits for books and com- com- um 
consumer electronics all the way up to, you know, apparel tends to have higher margins, jewelry and these kinds of things. Uh, and then services tend to have the highest margins in the world of retail. Uh, that's one PL. The other PL is it looks a lot like eBay's PL, oddly enough. So, in a marketplace model, what changes is, and this is true for Amazon's marketplace, all of Alibaba, eBay, et cetera, we sell that exact same $100 widget. And our commission, or what we call in the industry your take rate, uh, is about 10% for Amazon. So, now uh, Amazon has a 10% commission or $10. What the, what the rules say is Amazon can't count the $100, which we then need a name for, and we call that GMV. They can't count that as revenue. They can only count the $10. So the exact same widget, if it moves from a retail kind of buying experience to a marketplace, Amazon loses effectively loses $90 in revenue. Uh, so that's the bad side of marketplaces. But if you think through the expenses, uh, there really aren't any because the retail part of Amazon was first and it really, you know, all the investment for the retail piece is, is, has been done. You already have 300 million consumers active on the site. There's really nothing that else to spend money on other than maybe some computing infrastructure. Uh, so let's, let's say that costs $3 for the sale of that item. So now $7 or 70% of that uh, $10 drops to the bottom line. Uh, and uh, when you look at it on a unit apples to apples kind of basis, my theory is it's a much, much more profitable sell for Amazon. Uh, so, so it's a very interesting business. Uh, and the other kind of punchline of it is if we take that, that kind of $107 billion, uh, that Amazon did last year, what you have to do is really kind of decompose it and say a, a pretty big chunk of that, over $10 billion, is marketplace revenue. Uh, but remember, that represents a 10% take rate. So we actually have to multiply it by 10 to get the true GMV of Amazon. And when you do that, what you find is, uh, by our calculations, last year in 2015, Amazon was really about 95 billion first party and 131-ish billion in third party. Together, it was 225 billion. So the punchline there is I think it's fair to think of Amazon as twice as large as they are because the marketplace really puts a lot of transactions under the iceberg where people can't see it. And particularly when you're talking them in in terms of retail and comparing them to other retailers, it's that $225 billion of sales that they got that they took away from some other retailer. So I, I feel like that's, that's very fair. I, I did want to mention for some of our listeners that don't listen every week, a GMV actually stands for gross merchandise value, right? Do I have that right? Yep. Yeah. So that's kind of our calculated number to represent the equivalent of actual sales if, if Amazon were to have sold everything and, and did not have a significant portion of their thing in a marketplace. And I think you, you walk through the math really well. Uh, sometimes when I'm trying to make it really simple, you know, I'll, I'll look at a, a typical margin product in retail and say, hey, if you sell a $100 item, at the end of the day, your net margin is going to be about $4. But when you sell that same $100 item through a marketplace model, your net margin might be $7. So, you know, potentially almost twice as much. Yeah, and it kind of begs the question, well, 
if that's true, then why isn't Amazon just a marketplace? And the marketplace and the retail business have pros and cons. The marketplace is more profitable, but uh, the negative on the marketplace, and, and just kind of pretend you just have those two options for a second, the negative is the consumer experience isn't as good because all these sellers don't have the shipping infrastructure that Amazon does. Uh, also, third party in this kind of mythical scenario where fulfillment by Amazon doesn't work exist. Um, also, that product's not prime eligible. And then the third thing is, and the reason I think Amazon really likes to stay in the retail business is Amazon doesn't set the price on third-party items. They create an ecosystem where there's competition, but uh, and you'll see this frequently. Sometimes that ha- that causes prices to go up. So if there's a hot collectible item or the hot toy of the year or a new release, like a, let's say that PlayStation Five was coming out and sold out very quickly on Amazon and it retailed for two ninety nine. Frequently, you'll find that kind of stuff for like three ninety nine. Um, so I think Amazon likes to be in the game and keep a, a pretty you know sizable portion of the sales first party because they can make sure that if there's going to be a price war on the latest GoPro or something, they, they can still control that price and, and have the lowest price in the market. Absolutely. The, the other thing that, uh, so I think the marketplace is a really big part of their success. Uh, and then the other piece is, uh, and, and this is interesting, what uh, Amazon spends something like $11 billion annually on fulfillment. So it's just crazy how much they're spending on it. Uh, but the, the odd thing that uh, we started noticing, uh, a couple things. Number one, this goes back almost eight years now, is I, I started noticing uh, I would get packages at Channel Advisor from fulfillment centers that I didn't know existed and were in states that we didn't know Amazon had fulfillment centers in. So we started tracking it and um, – you know, you can kind of Google that, Google Channel Advisor, Amazon Fulfillment Centers. You can see we put out an annual map now and this kind of stuff. Uh, so it's one of my strange hobbies. Um, the other thing is uh, this this quizzical thing started to happen in the data. Some of the Wall Street analysts started to kind of back into, okay, we know what Amazon spends on fulfillment. We know how many packages they ship. What do they spend per package? And that's actually been going down. Uh, because uh, even though fulfillment costs have been growing very, very rapidly, uh, the unit – Shipped has been growing faster. And what's happening there is Amazon has built so many fulfillment centers near population centers, they've effectively gotten product within, you know, five to 20 miles of everyone. Or, or in, in logistics, what they would do is they, you would kind of say they've gotten everything kind of in a zone one uh, of the consumer, meaning kind of the lowest shipping rate that, that, that the carrier has because you're relatively close. So, so that's pretty fascinating. And, and just a quick summary on that. We believe Amazon has 104 fulfillment centers in the U.S. And these things are massive. When they first started doing them in Seattle, they um, they started with kind of a 200,000 square foot facility. And then as they went into the Midwest, where land is more uh, you know cheap and prolific, they went to kind of a million square foot. And now as they've gone into Texas, they do a 1.2 million square feet uh, facilities and these things are like the last scene of Indiana Jones. They're just massive. You can't really – you could be on the moon. You can't really see the horizon. They're so large. Uh, uh, they're effectively 22 football fields kind of under a roof. So it's pretty amazing. I, I have personally haven't been on a tour, but uh, Amazon does offer tours if you go to, to Amazon Fulfillment. And uh, it, it's something I definitely recommend everyone try, kind of a bucket list for e-commerce kind of thing. So we believe there's 104 in the U.S. They've already announced another five this year. There was just one yesterday they announced. Uh, or two actually in New Jersey. And that's about 75 million square feet. 
Then if you look at Europe, about 35, uh, and Asia Pacific, another 35, you add all that up, you've got over 180 fulfillment centers and well over 100 million square feet. They are, they are so far ahead on this build out that if this ends up being, you know, a strategic differentiator, like they clearly believe it is, uh, it, it could be game over on that front. The, the only other company, um, that kind of is close as Walmart, uh, but it's apples and oranges. I, I'm not a logistics guru, um, but you know the way the way Amazon's fulfillment centers are set up is on one side, product comes in typically from manufacturers or, or from other Amazon facilities, and then it gets stored, and then individual pick pack ship happens on the other side. Walmart facilities are very much store fulfillment, so it's kind of like product goes to brand to these like very large, I think they have like 10 regional distribution centers, and then it goes down to distribution centers and then to stores. So it's very much what's called dock to dock. So it goes truck to truck and it's still kind of palletized as it works its way down to a store. So it's not as if they may have actually more square footage, but it's kind of configured very differently. And it would be a massive undertaking to kind of configure that for direct to to consumer shipping. I believe they do have four to six direct to consumer fulfillment centers and they're they're making really big investments there, Um, but it really pales in comparison to where Amazon is at this point. And then uh, the third flywheel kind of that ties these two things together is Prime. Uh, and this is where Amazon is very, very secretive. Uh, they uh, they don't reveal how many people are in Prime. They do announce, uh, they did announce that it's grown at about 50% year over year for the last two years. Uh, and they did say, they always have this quizzical way of saying things. They said something like, this is like holiday of 14, that there's tens of millions. So that kind of narrows it down between 10 and 99 million. <laughs> um, our estimate is it's about 40 million paid subscriptions. Uh, there's been some interesting there. I've seen estimates that are higher at kind of like 60 or 70. Uh, I, you know, no matter how you slice it, it's about 15 to 20% of the base. So you may say, well, why does it, why does everyone get so uptight about this? If it's only 15 or 20% of Amazon's buyer base, the prime users spend about four times as much. So, so while it's only you know a small portion of the base, it's about over half of the wallet. And, and we see this with our customers. You can put products in and out of prime eligibility, and they literally will sell thirty to fifty percent more when they're prime eligible. Um, the the other thing that's interesting about that, a data point that kind of teases this out, is so so if we think about Amazon, and this is the data that, that came out today, so this is fresh. Amazon grows at twenty six percent right now. The new users is growing at 13%. So half that growth is coming from new users coming on. But if if new users isn't growing 26% and Amazon is, where does that growth come from? It comes from frequency. So the frequency of purchase of Amazon buyers is is really, really rapidly growing. And that's kind of the, the prime flywheel at work. Any thoughts on that, Jason? A few things. Certainly the prime is obviously super interesting. And, and you know, that feels like one of the flywheels that Jeff at least anticipated in the 97 letter, if not when he started the company. The marketplace one feels like a happy accident that that became the third flywheel, as you as, as you sort of explained. But looking at Prime, one of the things that's interesting is, you know, you look at those estimates, 40 to 60 million Prime members at 100 bucks a pop, that's more membership revenue than Costco generates. And Costco is the second largest retailer in the U.S., and like essentially exclusively gets revenue from those memberships. So the prime revenue isn't even all that important to Amazon, and yet it's it's larger than Costco's where it's the the fundamental thing they're trying to grow. Yeah, and um, 
Prime is a little bit of a double-edged sword, which is interesting. So if you've ever seen the jet pitch, part of what they believe is Prime has driven this really bad behavior, and, and I'm just as guilty of this as anyone is. You know, It's kind of a worst-case scenario. You get one product in a box, and, and I frequently get this right where I'll get an Amazon box, this nice big box, and there'll be a little something inside of it. Um, to optimize, when you're giving away free shipping, what you want to do is put as much stuff in the box as possible. So it rides, you, you, you take the cost of the package and the shipping and you allocate it over many products. Um, so, so that's one of the downsides of Prime is that the logistics costs, uh, of, and the, the utilization of the free shipping, uh, has gone down to, I don't know what it is. I would guess it's pretty close to one to one. You know, maybe it's like 1.1 or 1.2 or something like that. Another thing on Prime that was interesting, um, we talked about it a little bit on the show, but it's important to kind of include it in this deep dive, is there's studies that show the penetration is getting on up there kind of north of 70% when you look at different household incomes. So when you look at the top tier, which is about 120K, I think the census defines this, um, Amazon's at about, their different surveys have shown somewhere between 70 and 80%. And one of the things Amazon did this quarter is they changed the pricing mechanism for Prime. It used to always be, it started out at $79.99, then it worked its way up to $99.99. And now just recently they did two things. Number one, they split it out. So it's effectively, I think it's $10.99 a month. So they came out with a monthly plan. Uh, and then the second thing they've done is they've unbundled the video. So you can have just Amazon Prime Video now for $8.99 a month. And on the conference call today, they talked about, uh, they actually kind of acknowledged that that is going to expose Prime to kind of a different demographic than they've had today. And reading between the lines, you know, some of the Wall Street folks were kind of suggesting that uh, it maybe Amazon realizes they're, they, there's only so many more households above 120K that they can get to, and these new pricing plans can kind of introduce people down lower. Um, Amazon also said, and a lot of people uh, kind of wonder about this, um, so when they broke out the video, it felt like they were going a little bit more head-to-head than, to, with Netflix than they ever had before. Um, and Amazon did kind of suggest they're going to spend a lot more on original content. And this is – I think they're already at like a $600 million a year pace on that, which is not peanuts. Um, but when the, Amazon says a lot more, people kind of feel like, <laughs> oh, that's going to be $2 billion. You know, so, so that was very interesting. And it's kind of – I've already seen several articles out that kind of says – Amazon's really declaring war on Netflix around original content. So, so and they talked about on the call, they also said when they look at the trial metrics, uh, this is, was a very specific thing. I was a little shocked. They said it when, when people, when they're trying prime, if they will actually start looking at video, that there's a cohort that uses video and one that doesn't, um, the one that uses video, um, you know, adopts and stays with prime longer. It makes sense to me. It's just interesting to hear them break that out like that. And they use that to kind of explain why they want to have that, that Amazon video, uh, as its own little subscription as kind of a gateway into prime. Yeah. That just absolutely makes it more sticky. It's funny because it, they end up with almost the opposite problem that retailers have traditionally ended up with is, you know, particularly retailers that fight on price tend to to cater to the lowest income households and then the struggle is how do they move up from that and you know Am- Amazon is in this position where they're catering to all the affluent households and running out of those and having to move down which is you know frankly a much better problem to have much much easier to accomplish. I did see at the same time they're letting you buy some of those formerly prime only things a la carte like the video. They also are adding new benefits to prime. So I think there's 
there have been some uh, new exclusive products that are only available to Prime users. And I wonder like, if that's an effort to make Prime more valuable or if that's just a convenient way of them distributing products that they have a constrained quantity of. Yeah, I saw some some hot video games, for example, are only available to Prime. And, uh, you know, one of the fastest growing programs that we'll spend a little bit more time on called Prime Now is obviously only available if you use Prime. So so they are kind of gating a lot of the the more interesting things to, to a Prime membership. Yeah. So so when we put this together, these kind of these, you know, these pieces that I think are, are what really have accelerated their business and, and kept them growing at this pace, we have the marketplace and that drives selection profits, value. The fourth leg of that is trust. So the other thing we have found is if 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 just Amazon is selling something, uh, it'll sell at a certain pace, like let's say 100 units a month. And then once a third party comes in there, uh, even if the third party isn't cheaper than Amazon, it's kind of like a validating thing where the consumer says, you know, I, I see multiple offers here. This must be a good value. And uh, it's kind of like progressive insurance where you can go and they've pre-checked the internet for you. So, uh, so, so there's a trust factor the marketplace brings. The second flywheel, which is the fulfillment and the fulfillment center investment is the, kind of the fast free shipping, um, actual unit low, low cost lower for Amazon because they're close to the consumer. And then the third is prime. And the, the piece that I haven't mentioned yet is fulfillment by Amazon. This is very commonly misperceived. I find by large retailers, they kind of view it as Amazon sellers just kind of forklift all their product over to Amazon. But really, if you're an Amazon seller, it, it Generally, FBA is designed really for kind of medium selling items. It's it's um, if you have fast sellers and medium sellers, meaning the turns are kind of multiple turns a month, it works really well. But it's not good for long tail product, and it's designed to have an economics that disincent that. Um, so the reason the seller would use FBA is it makes your product prime eligible, and and that's the there's a demand component to it. It is a decent third party logistics platform and whatnot. Um, but the real hook of FBA is the demand connection through prime eligibility. So, so I find a good way to kind of put all this together is um, think about that long tail kind of a curve where you have items that are very fast sellers, like the latest GoPro, the latest hot fashion item. Then you have things kind of in the middle, like maybe last year's um, iPad Air 2 or something. So someone, there's certainly a consumer out there that wants an iPad. They don't need the latest and greatest. And they're willing to trade down to the, the 200 iPad, $200 iPad versus the $400. Or, um, you know, or maybe it's like last year's fashion or something like that. Uh, and then you have the long tail. So if you really put some numbers on this, Amazon has 400 million items for sale on the site. And only about 4 million or 1% are first party, meaning where Amazon is the retailer. Um, those are going to be prime eligible. Amazon changed, you know, and Amazon gets to control that. That's a super small percent of the selection. But because of this distribution curve, uh, as you know, it's kind of the 80 20 rule. A, a very large percentage of the sales come from that, those products. So they're the top sellers. And it's interesting, you can generally go follow this by sales rank on Amazon in every country. It's a little different. But like in the US, if something's in a top 150 sales rank, it's usually going to have a first party component. Then as we kind of come down that curve, the next chunk is really designed for uh, to incent third parties. So it's kind of third party marketplace and then it leverages FBA because that's where prime eligibility works really well for, for products that you're going to, they may not sell as well as the latest GoPro or whatnot, but they are, they're still pretty medium sellers. Uh, those are also prime eligible. When we look at that bucket, there's 35 million there. So that gives us about 40 million prime eligible or 10%. 
if you count the first party and then third party and FBA. Then you have 350 million long tail things. And this is, I always use silly examples like ferret hoodies and yodeling pickles and everything you can imagine is in there. And that gives Amazon that selection, you know, um, you know, just huge leverage that no one else has near the selection. And there, you know, what's nice about that is it's great for the consumer, but all these other things out there like SEO and AdWords, and it just gives them this infinite database of products that they can sell, which is pretty amazing. And then, good. Oh, I was just going to say, and it, it, it just helps keep consumers in their ecosystem more. So they don't have a reason to establish a relationship with another seller that has those there's a long tail. And of course, it also lets them see when those products move up. So some of those, those 350 million long tail items, the yodeling pickle, like suddenly becomes a medium or fast mover, you know, for some unforeseen purpose when it appears on a, an Oktoberfest commercial or something, right? And it, it gives them uh, sensors into that long tail to, to understand what to promote and what to ultimately make a one P product. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is where you know, there's a couple of kind of wise tales that come out of this. If most products move down this 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 kind of life cycle, right? The uh, the GoPro kind of generates out, and the next one comes along, and many sellers ride that curve. But where where it bites people, uh, the classic example is the Thunder Shirt, which was this obscure uh, when it came out, the uh, kind of pet product, and it rapidly became a top seller. And there was all these folks selling it on the internet, and Amazon picked it up, kind of in a first party, and really competed with with third parties. That happens occasionally, um, but it usually works the other way. Two, two other programs to kind of highlight uh, now that hopefully everyone has that mental image of, of how that selection works is, uh, and there's a lot of confusion around these, so just to be clear. So Prime, when I say Prime, I mean free two-day shipping. And then and what Amazon does is they try to put uh, – a fulfillment center can hold around a million and a half SKUs. So what they try to do is they try to put that product as close to you as possible. So if you're in Chicago, they've got data science that says here's the 1.5 million products that we think are going to be the – that Chicagoans are going to need. But if you order – you, Jason, being in Chicago, uh, you order something that's not there, what they'll do is they'll look in another fulfillment center and then they'll – They'll effectively kind of fly it from. Let's say it ends up being in Kentucky. They'll um, they have two options. They uh, what they historically would do is they would use UPS and they would say, "Shoot, we don't have it locally, so we'll go ahead and take the cost of shipping it to you from Kentucky." Now what they're doing is they're starting to build up this kind of cross network across their system where they would say, "Okay, Jason ordered it. It's not in Chicago. It's in Kentucky. Let's fly it uh, to a hub." And they're using uh, I think it's Wilmington, Ohio as a hub, and then. It goes it would go overnight, uh, just like FedEx and UPS do with their models. It would hub out of Hebron to Ohio and then to Chicago, and you would have it in your two-day. And it would kind of go along that that kind of fastest path to you in the back end. Um, so that being said, there's two programs that are, are a little different. One is called Prime Free. This is one they've really just rolled out more aggressively into about 25 cities. Uh, and this one is about a million items, and it tends to be – think of it as the stuff that's in your fulfillment center that's near you. Uh, and what they do there is as you're shopping, you can filter this way or you'll see it actually kind of signified on the site. And 
it's about a million to a million and a half items that can come to you same day. So generally what you do is you order before noon, you get it before five kind of a thing. So, so think about this ring. So we've got this, this outer ring that's about 350 million non-prime eligible, then 50 million or 40 million prime eligible, 1.5 million same day eligible. And then there's an even tighter ring, which is prime now. And this is in 27 cities. And what they've done here is they've added a whole new fulfillment center infrastructure that are smaller. They're about 50,000 square feet. And what they do is they say, okay, what's the stuff that that consumers want kind of on a daily basis. And this tends to be pretty interesting and it's about 25,000 items. And that's what prime now is. It's such a unique set of inventory. They put it in a separate app. Um, so that's, that's kind of a different thing about this, but it's an amazing service. So for free, if you order more than $35 worth of stuff in two hours, you can get 25,000 products. Um, and the other day my headphones broke um, and I just kind of got new headphones and or you need some cables or we use it a lot um, at uh, a com- you know companies I work at uh, for just stocking the office with supplies and things like bananas and stuff because it's great prices and you don't have to pay to have it delivered. So so think about that mental metaphor uh, uh, as you think about how Amazon has got this product close to you and gotten the time to ship the top 25,000 items down to an hour if you pay or two hours if you don't. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, so Jason, uh, I talked a lot in there. What are some of the, you? you and I both talked to tons of retailers. We were just kind of at, at an event and uh, Amazon was a hot topic. It always is. What are some of the misperceptions that you get from retailers about Amazon when you're out there talking to them? And that's kind of our, our third uh, of the four topics. There's a few that come up and the, the one that comes up the most often and drives me the most crazy is, is everyone goes, yeah, but they do all that because they're not profitable. And if, you know, one day when the stock market runs out of patience, they're going to be in big trouble and then we'll be able to compete with them on a level playing field. Yeah. And the inverse of that is, well, if I went to Wall Street and said, I'm not going to be profitable, then I could do anything I wanted to. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And the uh, it's actually just patently not true. And, um, and if you actually read that 97 letter, it's pretty interesting. Jeff Bezos basically says, we're going to run the company by making customers happy. And we think that generates free cash flow. So that's the metric they really focus on. And um, as an entrepreneur, it's it's. It, can, it gets frustrating as you scale your business because what you find is these accounting rules just do very strange things to the money you make. Um, you know, as a software company, we'll go sell a customer for a hundred thousand uh, dollars over the next year. They'll pay us up front, but we have to take that revenue and spread it out over a year. Um, and it, it makes logical sense. Um, but we paid for the salespeople up front and their commission and the software, but then the revenue comes kind of over the next year. Um, so there's all these things that happen in the accounting rules that really distort your financials. And effectively what they're saying is, those things are going to happen, and it's going to make our, our EBITDA, which is the classic measure of profitability uh, on, from a public company, it's going to make it look bad for, you know, I think 20 years when they wrote the 97 letter. But really, if you watch free cash flow, and, and they, they've historically, they always have a slide in their presentation of here's how much free cash flow we generated. And then they kind of, then, then they go in and say how they went and spent it. Um, and what's been interesting is that's been creeping up. So it used to be they would generate two to three billion in free cash flow. Then they would just go spend it all on on fulfillment center leases and you know data centers and all this invest international expansion devices. So it'd say, 
hey, we generated over two billion, but we spent five, so there'd be like minus three in the cash flow. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of crazy. Um, but now they're starting to get to the point where they're generating six, seven billion dollars, and they're spending three or four, and they just can't spend enough of it. I think I think AWS has become such a big profit business; it has profits, profit net profit margins well over twenty percent, kind of heading towards twenty five. Um, and then North America, um, they they do break this out kind of by geography. They call it CSOI, which is segment operating income um, and consolidated segment operating income. Uh, North America is starting to generate a profit, the retail business at three and a half percent and international at 1.3. Now, those certainly aren't massively profitable businesses, but a lot of it is that massive investment in fulfillment center. If you strip that out, I think they would start to be getting up into double digits in North America and high single digits internationally. So that's a that's a misperception. Amazon's is profitable. And I think uh, they probably this content thing. I, I think they're running out of stuff they can spend lots of money on. Uh, except content could be interesting, and they could go back into the um, you know uh, the losing money phase if they really do go after Netflix on that. Yeah, the the analogy I like to use the the silly metaphor is to sort of uh, compare it to a family budget, right? And you you think about a family that's spending more money than they're earning, and you have to look at what they're spending that on, right? Because if they're buying boats and jet skis with that money, then yeah, I think we could all agree that the family's not profitable and is making some poor decisions. But if they're not profitable because they're putting three kids through Harvard and that that's going to dramatically increase the earning potential of the overall family, that's an entirely different story. And essentially, that's what Amazon's doing. It's it's putting all those fulfillment centers out there and creating this this sustainable competitive advantage. And when you think about you know, the largest company in the world, Walmart, opening six direct-to-consumer fulfillment centers, and, you know, they're only 99 behind Amazon. You know, they're putting that money into a cash machine that's going to have a very long-term advantage in return. And so it's foolish to think of them as not profitable. Yeah, I like that family metaphor because this mythical family is also going out and they're taking every penny the bank will loan them and they're buying houses to then kind of, you know, Airbnb or something like that. And um, it seems nonsensical at first because they're they're just kind of pouring cash into this. But if you look at that annuity they're building up over time, those lines will cross and this mythical family will just be, you know, cash flowing tons uh, if they can get the occupancy of these these kind of mythical houses going. It's It's a good analogy. I like that. Cool. You know, one of the other ones I know you and I both hear a lot is the old, well, Amazon's great, but but they're never going to enter my category. Yeah, and the um, previous regimes at eBay always kind of felt this. And then Amazon, um, you know, uh, squarely got out of books and into electronics and then parts and accessories. And then eBay even had like these kind of, you know, original categories of collectibles and things. And Amazon has built really nice collectible businesses around coins and certified sports memorabilia and they always come at it with an angle like the certification kind of a thing Um, another classic example is uh, etsy uh, was out there for a very long time and you know felt like they had carved out this very small niche of handmade stuff that amazon wouldn't get involved in Uh, and then before you knew it etsy was at kind of a two to three billion dollar run rate and then Amazon has announced that they they clearly want to get into that category, and and this quarter they announced that I forget the metric, but they you know uh, it's always interesting to see Amazon does so much and they only put like ten bullets in their press release. And there was a bullet about the uh, the impressive momentum of handmade, and so it's clearly kind of a top ten priority for Amazon, and they squarely have Etsy, who you would think would be 
kind of immune from this, but uh, they fell into that trap and, and Amazon is going at them guns blazing. I feel like most businesses, there's a natural inclination to overestimate the complication of your own market. And so everyone feels like they have to deal with these really difficult problems that an outsider doesn't want to deal with, right? And so in retail, you know, there's a bunch of people that make money selling parts for cars, right? And they go, oh man, we're unique we have a fitment problem. We have to match the parts to the make, model, and year of vehicle of our shopper. And Amazon's not going to want to mess with that complexity, right? And now, you know, of course, you can go shopping for auto parts on Amazon, and and they solve all those fitment problems just like a traditional auto parts dealer does. Or you look at, like, the wine industry, and you say, oh, my God, we have all these state-by-state distribution laws, and that's really complicated, and Amazon's never going to want to mess with that. And then you, you go look at Amazon Wine, and they have figured out all the state-by-state distribution laws. At their scale... If there's margin to be made, they can solve for the complexity just as well as anyone else. And so it's very dangerous to rely on your barrier to entry being complexity that you don't think Amazon will tackle. Yeah, and um, those those were all retail examples we gave, but we could kind of even broaden it and say Amazon won't compete with my business outside of retail. And, and this is interesting. This is where the Amazon playbook is very unique, kind of on page three. Pa- page one is classic agile startup. It's experiment, have an environment that allows people to fail, throw a bunch of stuff against the wall and see what sticks. See what sticks. I think you and I are the only people that have fire phones. Someday those are going to be massively collectible and, and we're holding on to them for 50 years. Uh, but that's an example of a failure, right? You know, and that was probably, I think I read an article that was like two to $400 million in the write off. And, you know, they probably had. $300 million into designing that thing. You know, so that, that feels like a $500 million mistake. But that same group has come up with Echo. Uh, so so the, the playbook is really fascinating. And the, the page one of kind of try a lot of stuff and see what sticks. You, we see companies like Apple and Google do that part of it. Then, then page two, scale it. Yes, everyone else has that page in their playbook. The part that's very unique about Amazon, having watched them over this period of time, and there's no good offline analogy. I think this is what blows a lot of retailers' minds and other industries that, that are kind of outside of digital is they then say, all right, to do this thing, whatever it is, we're going to have to invest a lot in infrastructure. And instead of taking a proprietary mindset, we're going to – the best way to pay for that is to kind of lease it to third parties. Uh, and this is where there's no offline analogy. It's kind of like Walmart saying, we built all these stores. Let's just open them up and let Target have a store inside of our store. doesn't make any sense. They would never do it. Or Walmart saying, gosh, we've invested tons in this data science. Let's let any retailer use it to kind of help fund it. It sounds nonsensical, but that's exactly what Amazon has done. And they've done it over and over again. The marketplace, you know, they let other retailers sell right on the marketplace, the fulfillment. So, you know, they effectively take this huge proprietary investment they've made in their fulfillment centers, and they open it up to anybody. Cloud computing with Amazon Web Services, they dog food to that for a while, and they realize, you know, to really scale this out into every country, it's going to be really expensive. If we open it up to startups and let them use this infrastructure, that would be amazing. Because of this, they're, they're generations ahead of Microsoft, IBM, HP, and Google's cloud computing kind of infrastructures. Um, the one that, that there's a lot of speculation about now is, is Amazon's investing in, in, in planes to kind of move between fulfillment centers. I look at that and I kind of say, is there a day where Amazon goes to retailers and says, hey, we're, we're doing enough direct shipping and investing in this 
stuff, uh, Macy's or Nordstrom or Walmart, what if we carried some of your packages for you? Uh, or what if they said to you, the consumer, hey, we can ship, Jason, we can ship a package from Chicago to San Francisco for $4 overnight. Why would you pay FedEx $10? Um, so it's, it's really interesting. And, and, you know, I, I think, I think Amazon, there's a famous Jeff Bezos quote, which is your margin is my opportunity because they started in books, which have like 2% margins. Everything else looks deliciously high margin to them. You know, they, they'll go into cloud computing at 25% and destroy your 40% and be more than happy there than, than where you were. So, so I think a lot of these kind of, uh, a lot of businesses that are out there should pay very close attention to what's going on because Amazon's appetite for finding these billion dollar kind of tangential businesses seems to have no bounds. Yep. Another thing is it creates collateral damage. Kind of the classic one that we see a lot in e-commerce is that Forrester study that said, uh, and I think it was, uh, remind me if I'm wrong, I think it was 2012, they did the survey and like 50% of consumers found products with Google search and 13 Amazon. And then in 2013, this is really when Prime was kind of on its upward trajectory, those numbers inverted and it went, it went kind of 40% Amazon, 13% Google. And then the next year it was like 50 or 60% Amazon, Google. And, and I think Google readily admits that Amazon's actually one of their biggest competitors because that, that prime flywheel has sucked in so many people that they don't really go to Google to search anymore for products. You look at the Chinese equivalents and Alibaba doesn't even let Badao crawl their sites. So they took it one step further and said, no, 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 we want to be the destination for product search. We don't want to make our products available anywhere else. Yeah, they don't allow any SEO. Um, Amazon allows SEO and they do some AdWords, but Amazon actually even said to Google, uh, you know, we do not want to be in product listing ads uh, because, you know, uh, I imagine it's because they felt like they, they didn't want people to go to Google to find Amazon product. They want them to keep going to Amazon. Exactly. And why give Google an opportunity to monetize Amazon searches? Yeah. So, so this brings us to topic four, and I'm, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on this because uh, I know I get this one a lot. And and as you uh, in in your when you're not podcasting at your day job, I'm sure this is probably one of the number one things you get asked. And really, kind of the the punchline here is okay, Jason Scott, you've outlined a pretty pretty compelling case that Amazon is pretty dominant. We see a lot of retailers out there really reeling right now. Um, even pure plays have a struggle with this. Uh, what should we do? How do you how do you survive uh, or thrive in an Amazon dominated world? Yeah, it certainly is a common question, and the very easy, obvious answer is to become a handset manufacturer. <laughs> yep. Turns out, even with Amazon as not a good competitor, it's pretty hard to be a handset comp- uh, manufacturer if your name is an Apple, though. So that might not be universal advice. Yeah, absolutely. The um, one of the things I always point to is look at the companies that have had, you know, there, there's not that many companies that have actually made it to kind of over a billion dollars in sales. Um, the ones that come to mind are, and, and ironically, Amazon ends up buying some of these, right? So Zappos and what Zappos did was they said, we're going to be the best at shoes. We're going to solve a problem no one has solved, which was the returns piece. Um, and they, they said, we can't do everything. We can't do selection, value, and returns. So we're really not going to focus on value. We're going to focus on selection and returns and a buyer experience that's unique. Um, another one is Woot that we've, we, you know, I know you and I are both fans of. Uh, two that aren't part of Amazon uh, are Fanatics. Um, no one knows how big they are, but you know, I think their core competency is really partnering with these leagues. And that's just not something that you would see Amazon really doing and kind of saying, Hey, NFL, let's, let's kind of 
you know, however you want to run these stores is fine. We'll police stuff for you. We'll, we'll run everything by you and you, you, you make it like 80% of the decisions and we'll make kind of 20% of decisions. That's just not their core competency. I think fanatics has done a really good job of that across all the different sports leagues. Another one that, that always surprises me that Amazon hasn't turned their guns to them is Wayfair. Um, and this is a controversial one because when I talk to retailers about Wayfair, they're pretty universally split half and half. Some people think it's a great model. They love that they drop ship. And they they love that they're really focused on furniture. Others don't really understand how sustainable Wayfair is going to be with that model. It's kind of like, all right, you know, the consumers are expecting two-day delivery. These guys are drop shipping. They don't control the consumer experience in the last mile. Um, and um, you know, there's even some kind of famous hedge funds that are shorting Wayfair that basically say – it's a glorified overstock and it should be one fourth of its current value. Um, but no matter how you slice it, you know, you, it, you know, I think it's fair to say where Wayfair has carved out an interesting category where Amazon isn't that heavily invested. Yep. And at least a component of Wayfair that like would extend to other companies is to focus on product categories that don't fit in the Amazon fulfillment center very well. Right. Like, so again, we talked about earlier, foolish to assume that that your barriers are permanent barriers, but it is less convenient for Amazon to put that furniture in the fulfillment center than it is a lot of the goods that that fit in their pick pack and ship system much more conveniently. So you know that does increase the cost to Amazon to play in that category a little bit, which is certainly one of the the ways you would compete is think about products that don't move through Amazon's system very well. Like, you know, some of the classic things we talk about competing with Amazon, you know, one is curation. Amazon is clearly going to win on assortment at this point. No one else offers 400 million products. But a lot of times, 400 million products is overwhelming and creates this paradox of choice. And so there is value that retailers offer in curating assortment and helping a consumer figure out what the exact right item is for their use case or their style or that would best meet their needs. And so, you know, we do see some retailers trying to compete with Amazon by being careful, very careful in that curation like that probably isn't going to let you win on volume, but it definitely can give you a segment of customers that Amazon isn't super appealing to. Other stuff that comes up a lot is discovery, right? That again, because they have so many products, the primary way that you find products and buy them on Amazon is through search. And they they spend a lot of time to be uh, as efficient as possible in that search. But if you really don't know what you're interested in, and you're just in the mood to find something that makes you feel good, and you just want to have a shopping experience and uncover some buried treasure and buy something that you didn't start the shopping journey knowing you needed, the search infrastructure in Amazon sort of works against you, right? Like it's very difficult to browse that Indiana Jones warehouse that Amazon has essentially become. And so there are a lot of retailers that are saying, hey, we're really going to focus on making it easier to browse and have more visual experiences and, and help people uncover. And again, you know, Amazon has smartly gone after the largest segment of people that do want to do that search, but there, you know, there are smaller segments of people that aren't well served by that. And, you know, so you, you can win them with good discovery experiences. Who do you think does a good job of that? Different companies in different categories, but, you know, we've, we've talked on the show a couple times about restoration hardware and they check a number of those boxes, right? They have a very good discovery experience. It's very visual. They 
sell products that aren't super convenient for Amazon to ship, and they also curate for a particular aesthetic for their shopper. And so they have other challenges in their business, but they've done a pretty good job leveraging all three of those pieces of advice to reasonably insulate themselves from Amazon. Yeah, and then uh, another one that comes up is uh, for a long time, retailers at stores kind of viewed them almost like a liability instead of an asset. And that's really turning around a lot of this. It's kind of ties in this omni-channel theme. Um, but, you know, can you leverage those stores to almost be your own little fulfillment center network or, you know, buy online, pick up in store? So that's that's definitely an area where a lot of the omni-channel guys are investing is as kind of a, a way to head off this fulfillment kind of infrastructure Amazon's built. Yeah, and to me, that is a very legitimate one, but it comes with some caveats. So we've seen some absolute successes there, right? Best Buy started shipping a meaningful number of products from stores, and when they did that, they actually increase their average delivery times to be faster than Amazon's average delivery times because, you know, Best Buy has 2,000 stores, so they they have the product much closer to the customer than Amazon does with the 105 fulfillment centers. So therefore have less, less distance for those products to travel. So if you have a big store network, that can totally work. The caveats are, are a couple fold. Number one, I hear retailers talk about their stores being a competitive advantage when they have like 40 or 50 stores. And, you know, in, in that scenario, Amazon actually has more points of presence than you do. And so that's pretty dangerous to bank on your stores being an advantage when Amazon has more fulfillment centers than you have stores, number one. And number two, you have to be really good at buy online, pick up in store for it to be a competitive advantage over Amazon. And at the moment, most retailers aren't. We previously talked about a JDA study where last year, 50% of all buy online, pick up in store orders had some kind of defect. And that's the store didn't have the right inventory or the, the customer couldn't find where to pick the product up in the store or the price changed or a whole multitude of things. But if that pick up in store experience isn't good, the Amazon experience is is highly reliable, and it's one of their big competitive advantages. And now that they've rolled out Prime Now, and they can essentially deliver in two hours to 50% of the U.S., they've really changed the expectation. So if if you're going to say, my stores are a competitive advantage, come pick up the product in my store, and then it's going to take six hours after I place the order before I can come pick it up in your store, then your stores are not a competitive advantage versus Prime Now. And you, and you can't use old retail tricks like making people walk to the back of the store for it. No, exactly. All, <laughs> all, all of those, those things aren't going to cut it. But if you legitimately can use your stores and say, hey, we have a guaranteed 30-minute window or maybe even a 10-minute window, and you say, man, you buy this from me and you can have the product in 10 minutes. You buy it from Amazon, you're not going to have it for two hours. That, in some circumstances, can absolutely be a competitive advantage for the brick-and-mortar retailer. Yeah, one that that I think people need to be investing a lot more in, especially if they're a multi-brand retailer, is private label. Um, We had Peter on the show. He talked a lot about that. Um, And I think that's a huge area that uh, Amazon's obviously investing there. Traditional retailers like Walmart, Target, Costco, they all, all had these house brands for a while. And what's nice about that is you just have more margin. You know, you're you're building it. You decide where it's sold. Uh, and um, if you look at even like Sears with Craftsman and some of those things, that's where a lot of the value has ended up being in those those retailers. Because what's happening is a lot of these brands that aren't yours can be bought anywhere, uh, and it becomes very very hard for you to differentiate. And what you're left with is, you know, maybe you can get some exclusives from the brand, but then really it becomes price. 
Yep, and that's not a fun place to be. And I would even extend that slightly to say private label for sure, but also just vertically integrated. So a lot of the successful companies we talk about these days are both the brand and sell direct to the consumer. And it, that you know, not necessarily private label, but the the Warby Parkers and the Bonoboses and those those folks. You know, if if you sell your own stuff, whether it's private label or whether it's a really aspirational brand that you've created, and Amazon can't sell your stuff, then that absolutely can be a, a a way to compete in an Amazon world. What else do you tell people to do? Well, so personalized products are still a niche. You know, if we were just looking at sales today, I'd say, hey, personalized products aren't that that big and maybe it's not a big enough niche. But we're seeing lots of trends that as manufacturing processes get better, a larger and larger percentage of products that we sell to consumers can be personalized for each consumer. And at the moment, Amazon hasn't demonstrated that they have a good solution for that space or want to solve it. Again, if the market becomes big enough, I have every confidence that that. Amazon will get into it. But right now, there's a number of retailers that are making money on uh, personalized products, and they're not having to compete with Amazon. So that that's at least uh, a short-term one. Loyalty can certainly be one. Like if you think of Starbucks as a as a retailer, you know they both have a personalized product and they have a powerful loyalty program, and so they're not super concerned about other good good retailers being able to steal them. And there are some other retailers that have built decent loyalty programs. And then if you're really just looking for growth and you're having to compete with Amazon, you know one of the best strategies is to expand geographically in places that Amazon doesn't play very well. So, you, you know, you can ex- expand into China, you can expand into Brazil, and you can leverage the marketplaces in those markets in the same way that you might leverage the Amazon marketplace in the U.S., and uh, Amazon's not going to be able to compete with you in those spaces. Yeah, and, and um, you know, China is interesting because it's one of the few regions where a local company has fought off Amazon and, and done pretty well. India, the jury's still out. You kind of have Amazon's doing pretty well, uh, but you have Flipkart and Snapdeal there. And the government has kind of set put Amazon at a disadvantage saying they can't run a fulfillment center or a retail operation. So they're pure marketplace there. And that means they can't offer prime. So there's a little bit of a protectionist thing. It's not really for Flipkart and Snapdeal. I think it's for the traditional Indian retailers. Um, but over time, you know, doubt the jury's out, but, but China is very interesting because I don't get the sense the government's really messed around in there too much. Um, but you know, they really haven't been able to make headway against Alibaba. And if anything, Alibaba, Tencent, WeChat, some of these guys have done really amazing having Amazon in their country. And Amazon's kind of a distant number three or four there. And I think what happened there is the marketplace was intact and has more of a a 4% take rate. So Amazon ends up being in a little bit of an innovator's dilemma themselves because they can't kind of take their 10% take rate down to 4%. Um, and that's conversely, that's interesting. I've always thought it'd be interesting is what if Alibaba came in the U.S. with a 4% take rate? Um, you know, that's less than half of Amazon's. How would Amazon react to that? And could Alibaba get sellers to give that other 6% back to consumers in savings? And in many ways, that's what Jet is doing is kind of saying, let's, let's kind of take Amazon's you know, I think they believe that Amazon's cash cow is the marketplace at 10%. They have a much different business model. How, how can they kind of 
turn that against Amazon in, in interesting ways and then also align them with, with folks. So uh, Alibaba jet kind of model is, is interesting. Obviously you have to be at this kind of tremendous scale to try that. Um, but there's no reason a retailer couldn't add a marketplace, but have it be much less expensive than Amazon's uh, as kind of a way to enhance selection and do it in a way that's a little bit more protected from Amazon. Uh, and, uh, another one you and I talk about a lot is services. Um, you know, there's some examples there. I do worry about this because Amazon, uh, one of those 10 bullets that they're starting to talk a lot about is home services, where they're really kind of using the platform in two ways. One of them is kind of to use services as upsell. So you buy a TV, they'll sell the installation. You buy a pool table, they'll sell the setup. You buy a grill, they'll sell the assembly kind of a thing. Uh, but then they've also got unbundled services too. So um, still some room there, but I do worry that Amazon, they're not actually doing the services, though. They're acting more of a marketplace on them. It's kind of lead gen. So not clear that model is going to work, but that services is another area. And then last but not least, what, what I say to a lot of folks is, look, you're, you're looking at this wrong. And Amazon has spent so many tens of billions of dollars on this. In a way, you'd be crazy to compete with it and build your own. Why not just use theirs? So, uh, and, and people, again, this kind of old school thinking of, well, I'll be helping a competitor. They'll be making revenue off of me. If, if Walmart said to you, hey, we, we'll let you use our amazing infrastructure, be it a store, a fulfillment center, or their computer, you would do that and you would kind of laugh all the way to the bank. That's essentially what Amazon's doing. So why not take advantage of it? And, and you can do it in such a way that, um, you know, you can, you can choose what you put where and what they see and don't see. So that's, that's an area that, that, you know, obviously that, you know, full disclosure, that's what we do at channel advisor. So I, I obviously am a big believer in that, but there is this kind of a, Hey, uh, kind of the frenemy approach that says, Hey, if you can't beat them, you might as well join them in, in some areas and, and be part of this massive infrastructure that they've built out. I think that last one is really the most common strategy is it's generally not a good strategy to just say, hey, they're, they're my enemy philosophically. And so I'm, I'm not going to partner with them or do business in any way, shape or form. And the way I see that manifest itself a lot is a lot of retailers refuse to use Amazon Web Services even though it, it would be the best platform for their needs, but exclusively because that revenue goes to Amazon, which is then going to compete with them on the retail side of the business. And, you know, that's sort of shooting yourself in the foot, and it it doesn't at this point really hurt Amazon. So it's, it seems like you need to be strategic about where it's to your economic advantage to leverage Amazon, and you should do that. And then you need to figure out where you can carve out a differentiated offer and compete against them. And, and that's where you'd use all those other tactics that we just just ran down the list. Yeah, I'll show those guys at Amazon. I'm going to spend $4 million on my own servers. <laughs> exactly. Well, listen, Scott, uh, this has been a lot of fun, but we have uh, definitely run out of time for this week. So I'm going to be really eager to hear listeners' feedback about the new Deep Dive show. And if you like it, we will certainly be happy to do more for you. And so until next week, wishing everyone a happy commercing. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review. 